listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the publisher of ACOWatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. On today's show, we'll get a rather unique, seasoned, and holistic perspective from a national leader and world-class innovator in the clinical informatics space. Dr. John Madison is the former Chief Medical Information Officer and Assistant Medical Director for Kaiser Permanente's Southern California region. John's focus and passion is the transformation of healthcare delivery via information technology through convergence of exponential technologies and data liquidity. John's CV is too lengthy to recount, but suffice it to say his street creds include direct patient care from an internal medicine and critical care medicine perch, crossing over into the brave new world of clinical informatics, wherein he's been instrumental, if not determinative, in the industry's continued evolution to serve up best-in-class clinical medicine while meeting the needs of the delivery system's patients or members. So, Fred, over to you. Let's get to know Dr. John Madison. Thank you so much, Greg. And, John, welcome to Pop Health Week. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us this week. You've you've been actively involved in a lot of areas, working with Kaiser, and uh, as well as very deep into some IT issues, patient issues, et cetera. Tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're working on now. Uh, my background, I was a marine biologist and evolutionary biologist. Before I decided to go to medical school, I did a residency in internal medicine with uh, a lot of critical care. So I'm board certified in internal medicine critical care, also was one of the co-founders of the hyperbaric medicine program at UCSD and one of the original docs in the life flight trauma system. I did a little bit of endocrinology, preventive medicine, and primary care along the way. Got drafted to do informatics and have gradually shifted from full-time clinical practice to uh, full-time informatics over a period of about 10 years and have been doing pure informatics and, and governance of informatics, including uh, hardware, software, infrastructure, continuous availability, disaster recovery, cloud strategy, working on various issues of cybersecurity, which continue to rise in criticality. I've done a lot of work on uh, terminology. I was on the board of the International uh, SNOMED for years, founder of the XML standard for uh, EHRs known as the CCD and CDA, along with a couple dozen good friends who really drove that standard forward and have been actively involved in every aspect of system architecture, infrastructure, usability, training, support throughout my career. As of January 1st, I have relinquished my governance roles and am beginning to work in, in addition to being a strategic consultant uh, ongoing at Kaiser Permanente, I am beginning to work with uh, different startups and uh, various companies across a, a wide array of the intersection of healthcare uh, technology and healthcare policy. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously you've covered a really broad area of both medicine and IT and bring these together. And one of the things I, I, I read in one of the uh, papers you published in uh, co-authored in Genome Medicine talked about a medical information commons. Can you tell our audience a little bit what you mean by that? 
Sure. That's an initiative that came out of funding the NIH uh, Precision Medicine Initiative and all of us. And it was actually an NIH, it is an NIH-funded group of experts of health information. And we published a series of papers on how to go about doing that. And my uh, personal view about how to do that has been very consistent for many years. And it aligns technically with how we scaled uh, Kaiser Permanente's electronic health record, and that is a federated database system, so that you do not have to centralize all data. And in the uh, ever-escalating world of cyber threats that we experience right now, and with a recent focus on health information as a high-value asset for cyber threats, it becomes all the more important that you do your design, you have to do security by design and everything you do. You have to really manage the risk in ways that reflect the threat. And so to the extent that all information would be co-located in a single logical or functional environment, it, it makes it easier once someone hacks in to get access to a larger set of personal health information. So to the extent that the information can be maintained in separate locations and yet accessible to credentialed researchers for aggregate research across different institutions, I think that there are clearly established models of federated uh, databases with uh, credentialed access to those. I think a case in point as to why uh, that's important, there's an active lawsuit just filed last month by a patient at University of Chicago saying that his health record was, air quotes, de-identified and sent to Google, and that he's suing because it's very, very, very easy to re-identify an individual from their mm -hmm. full health record after it's been legally de-identified according to HIPAA, because the HIPAA de-identification strategy is ineffective. And there's lots of literature to that point. It's, it's a convenient safety net for those who believe that they can conscript other people's data in compliance with HIPAA, but uh, I have talked to the very people who uh, have received these data on many occasions in the past six years, and to a person they agree that de-identification is a mythical beast in the area of uh, big data analytics and machine learning, what's known as the mosaic effect. If you can link mm -hmm. two or three different records from the same person that you can clearly identify as the same person without a name or a social security number, right. say, yep, these are the same person, you can create a much bigger composite and it, it's increasingly impossible to prevent re-identification. So the mm -hmm. discussion around de-identifying data or anonymizing data is, is absurd. There is no such effective strategy. But having policy procedures and technology in place to minimize the risk of re-identification is the more appropriate strategy. And so I've argued that uh, in order to increase the sample size of data that we have, in order to accelerate the rate of learning in the learning health system, that having a federated model with credentialed access mm -hmm. makes more sense. There are a couple of downstream collateral requirements to do that, one of which is that you have to have a credentialing process that is rigorous and ensures that you're not being spoofed by someone who isn't who they mm -hmm. say they are. So identity management is a key part of that. And it's also important that you don't let someone uh, target a specific individual to find out if their record exists so that if someone does a query and they get one return or five returns to that query, 
It could be that they found the five people who had a rare disease, or it could be they have five people that look like someone whose health record they're trying to re-identify. And so having controls that are sensitive to the very threat that is associated with re-identification for inappropriate purposes is something that needs to be managed, and that kind of infrastructure and architecture can be done. The other qualification is is that when you do that, you assume that in the different federated nodes that the data is represented the same way with the same master files, same terminology, and same data definitions, and same workflow that the the bias of associated with deontics and the bias associated with the underlying population is somehow exposed in a way that a researcher could the same data definition, conclusion, same based upon the metadata associated the with which version of which health record, which version of which ontology, which workflow, which context, which patient population was subsumed within that set of data. And only in the context of having a rich set of metadata that are exposed to the same person who's been credentialed to access it, will there be an opportunity to have higher level statistical validity with any particular analytics done across the whole infrastructure. So that's my view. The, the, other, the other one piece, and I spoke about this for the National mm-hmm. Academy of Medicine and Science, um, has to do with homomorphic encryption. And homomorphic encryption is a way that you can encrypt all the data, operate on encrypted data, and uh, gather insights from that without ever seeing the primary data. Pretty spectacular technology that allows for that. The only problem is that the homomorphic encryption only works to the extent that the database schemas and the database models and the different sites are similar enough to disguise the data is truly identical, and that does not exist. So there's there's still some work to so, do in the role of homomorphic encryption. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: getting back to this idea of federated versus centralized, because and this is this is my mind thinking this one through. If you've got one essentially centralized database obviously you get in you've got it all whereas if you have a federated you may not have access to the other piece of it but doesn't that give the individual or the potential hacker more points of entry where you could potentially have a fault with one of the thousands of federated people out there yeah it's a trade-off if somebody Mm -hmm. uh, is lax on maintaining their cyber defense in one of the nodes it Correct. compromises the, the data within that node. So there are more nodes to target, but the size of the damage uh, and the breach from a single node is going to be vastly smaller than somebody hacking the larger mm-hmm. structure. And since the Pen- Pentagon's been repeatedly hacked and uh, you haven't heard about the big hack associated with Cambridge Analytica and the, and the documentary that was just yep. done on that, it reveals that nothing is unhackable, that the notion of absolute protection is uh, pretty obsolete. So it's a matter of relative risk. And it's my so, personal belief that having, having a set of standards that, are, that qualify someone to participate in a federated network, that they maintain the level, a high level of cybersecurity is a prerequisite to them to participate in the infrastructure, and that standard should be every bit as high as any standard applied to a centralized database, Mm -hmm. and the risk of being breached doesn't really change, but the volume of data subject to that breach is diminished in a federated network. Mm-hmm. So you, you've talked about you know some pretty high end approaches to try and you know have a, a, encrypted data that you're actually then working on and not getting down the specifics of it. What should the 
the general public be thinking about in terms of their healthcare data, this ongoing thing? Do I share my data? Do I not share my data? Is there anything they could look for or try to ask to ensure that at least they're getting some form of protection beyond, as you talked about, HIPAA? There's a lot of lessons to be learned from the EU and data sovereignty and what they're trying to do uh, with the GDPR. Mm -hmm. And so if you take the concept of data sovereignty, that is that the data that comes from an individual belongs to some sort of sovereignty, whether it's individual sovereignty, and there's a lot of work being done on self-sovereign identification and personal health records, or whether it belongs to one of our Native American tribes and their sovereignty, mm-hmm. or whether it belongs to Ger- Germany versus France, you, you can apply the data sovereignty construct to almost any taxonomy. And what that allows you to do is to diminish the risk of people targeting specific sets of data in the absence of an aggregated central repository is less likely to be attacked than if it's in a federated environment. Uh, sort of along those lines, what's your, you, you talk about, you know, it's almost the ownership, you know, who's, who's sovereign over that. What, what's your thinking about the individual owning their data and licensing the use of it? Yeah, I have a pretty strong, stable position on it. It about 20 years ago that the individual should have the right to maintain the complete copy of their health record if they choose to. They don't have to, but if they choose mm-hmm. to and to decide who gets to see when, where, what, why, how, and for how long, what intended purposes, and so forth. And if someone has a rare disease and they want to share their data with every single research, even remotely related to their rare disease in the world, they should have the right to do that. If they don't want anybody Mm -hmm. to look at their data for anything, anything, they should have the right to do that within the bounds of the HIPAA TPO for healthcare delivery organizations, being able to manage the quality of treatment, the payment for services rendered, um, Mm -hmm. and enhancing operations, a classic three TPO that are covered in HIPAA. And so the individual institutions that capture and uh, pay for the infrastructure to capture the data have not only a right but an obligation to serve those three features through TPO. And they also have laws requiring them to retain records for a certain period of time, both for quality improvement as well as for defense in a medical malpractice situation. And so there, there are sort of orthogonal considerations. If you look at it from an institutional point of view, there is a legal requirement to retain all those data that are relevant to a decision at a point in time. If you look at the individual person, they should have the right to control what they share with whom, when, and how. We're seeing moves in those directions, and I, I think that some people will be very aggressive at managing their own health record, and other people will simply say, you know, just keep track of it for me. I can look it up on your portal when I want it, and I don't mm-hmm. care so much. So, so the, the, the array of attitudes towards privacy and security not only varies between countries and institutions within those countries and providers with those institutions, but it also varies person to person, and it varies right. over time within the same individual. So someone who gets a diagnosis of HIV or breast cancer one day is, doesn't want anybody to see that information, and six months later they're marching in the uh, <laughs> demonstration to get, to get more funding wearing a T-shirt. And and are very, very public about their conditions. So an individual, I believe, needs to have the right to maintain those kind of value judgments uh, that may change over time and different individuals, different value judgments should be able to. What what I think are the two sort of uh, Rubicons, uh, which cannot be crossed, is institutions must be able to retain what they had in front of them 
to make a clinical decision to defend that decision against a legal challenge later. And the individual person also needs to have the right to have a complete copy of the record and share it with whom, when whom, how much, and how long, for what intended purpose as well. So those are, those are sort of mm -hmm. orthogonal constructs, but they're not mutually exclusive at all. So I think both of those constructs create a solution that allows institutions and nation states and Native American tribes to manage things at a sovereign state level and institutions to maintain what they want to maintain in order for legal defense as required by law and individuals to share according to their own value set and intended mm -hmm. uh, uses. So it, it, I think it's a pretty reasonable way to go. I haven't heard, uh, if there's a good argument against it, I haven't heard it yet. So I'm thinking of my own case here. I've got, you know, primary care doctor at one facility, one, and I, and I get all my other care at this more of a high-end, I guess you would call it, kind of place, well nationally recognized. And two completely different EMRs, the portals, in one of them, I see everything. It's great. I can go on there. And the other one, I see almost nothing. What's causing that to happen? We've got, you know, is it a technology issue? Is it a cultural issue? Is it both of them? Is the providers not willing to open up? What's your feeling on that? Oh, I, I don't, I don't have feelings. I have objective observations. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so it's very, it's very simple. Um, if you uh, open notes is probably the best illustration of that principle. And Tom DeBanco and Jan Walker, who are the the pioneers of open notes and who should get the first Nobel Prize in digital health. Uh, for their work on open notes, um, they have made it clear that if you go institution to institution, in every institution there's a department that refuses to use open notes and let people have access to real time access to clinical notes as they're committed to the chart that they become available to patients simultaneously. And the point that they make is that every institution is different. So one institution, it's endocrinology saying, oh, that won't work for us because we have sensitive data, or it may be OBGYN, or it may be primary care. But the point is it's different in every institution. And so we have institutions who have been fully up on open notes across every specialty for a long time, except for you know the obvious CDRP uh, kinds of, of sensitive notes. When it's done properly, when it's done well, there is literature to show that the workload to a physician does not go up, but yet those who say, we're not going to release that information to anybody, and this comes back to your portal view, you know, which labs do you release? How long do you delay some of the sensitive labs? Do you ever delay a report that shows cancer for the first time, or do you insist on always giving that person a, a verbal discussion about the cancer before they read it in print. My view is as follows, that everything ought to be available uh, to each individual unless there's a very, very specific demonstrable mm -hmm. risk of sharing that information with someone who has said they'll kill themselves if such and such happens or whatever, where you know that there's a serious risk of revealing some information that has to be managed in a way other than just posting it on a portal and having no insight into what the impact was and someone who has stated, a, you know, an extreme reaction to that kind of information. So the degree to which there's variation in different institutions around what you can get on a portal totally reflects the anxiety of those managing the portal. It has nothing to do with either regulatory issues, except in some cases there, there are minor exceptions about what you can and cannot display, and that varies by state uh, in a digital format, but that's that's slowly working its way out. But I think people should have access to 
absolutely everything unless there's an indication that it's a problem. Now, what do you do when you uh, are having trouble reaching a patient who does have a new diagnosis of cancer and you've called them and emailed them and you can't get a hold of them and maybe they're looking at their portal once in a while? Is there an ethical call to put something like that, say, a month downstream, depending upon the cancer and its rate of spread and so forth, so that they might stumble on it for the first time over a portal? Well, if you can't get a hold of them any other way and they're going to look at the portal and see it, that can be considered a quality issue that is justified as a backstop when you're unable to locate an individual to tell them that they need to come back in to have a cancer treated. So the main thing is to to understand that there aren't really absolutes here. A lot of the variation in what portals reveal is truly about the anxiety of individual organizations managing those data, but unequivocally, patients have had rights to have full unfettered access to their records with those exceptions we mentioned earlier for a long time. That not only should not change, but um, we need to continue down that pathway. And some institutions have chosen, for example, in open notes to tell people, make sure you use consumer-friendly language so that people aren't irritated at terms that are medical jargon. And the truth of the matter is, is we told people to essentially uh, use the same kind of language they would use in the exam room and as they would write their own note, because everybody has, has access to search on the web and they can find out that SOB is not what you call someone you're really angry at, but that's someone who is short of breath. And they can figure that out. And they do. And the next time they come back in as a result of their search on those terms, they're a much more, their medical fluency and their medical literacy, clinical literacy is higher and so it benefits them because if that same doctor uses that same language to them in the next visit, they may actually know for the first time what they're talking about. Right. So you've actually, by, by freeing up this information, obviously you can create a more engaged and knowledgeable consumer in the long run. Exactly. Yeah. Or I like to refer to them as people because yeah. um, I'll, just, I'll just do a short riff on this. I published a paper on person-centric health care last fall. This whole notion of uh, patient-centric care is an oxymoron because patients are what doctors call people. So it's not patient-centric at all. But now we're getting this next half-baked version of patient-centric called consumer-centric. Well, mm-hmm. if someone doesn't consume health care, does that mean that they don't have health needs and prevention and wellness? No, of course not. And we all know that the social context and the social determinants of health and the behavioral Mm -hmm. determinants of of health and the economic determinants of health are incredibly valid. And so a lot of what's happened and leading to a lot of the anxiety, stress, burnout, depression, suicide of physicians today has to do with the fact that they're so overwhelmed with the volume of work and the amount of interaction they have with a health record that they don't really have the time or the energy to really explore who is this person sitting in front of me. So they really do treat the diabetic. They really do treat Mm -hmm. the hypertensive. They're not treating the person. They don't understand the whole condition. And so there will come a day when all of this burden and overhead is reduced through a variety of things in ways that allow us to restore uh, empathy, compassion, engagement of not just the individual person, but their care team. And the VA has done something very interesting recently. They're putting personal histories. They've hired professional writers to do a quick summary of who is this person? Are they a World War II vet? Were they shot down over Vietnam? Uh, You know, what are the things that they identify as what's important to them? Are they married? Do they have children? 
mm-hmm. had they had a recent divorce. What are those kind of things that shape their lives? Did they lose their job recently? That shows up in an actual personal profile that can be updated so that when you see a patient, you can see the person, not the, the person. not the patient, not the consumer, but the person. And I just applaud the VA for that initiative. And I think that that should become a standard so that we can begin treating people instead of consumers or patients, which is good physicians. Empathic, compassionate physicians have always attempted to do this. What has happened in the past couple of decades is the time pressure is so profound that people Mm -hmm. just want to get through the basics of treating the diseases to make sure they don't get sued. At what point, and we, we don't have a, a, a lot of time left, but at what point do you think all of this data and all of this technology actually unburdens the system instead of burdening it? Well, I don't think the data is the burden. I, I, I think. And I meant um, systems, et cetera, this, you know, the EHRs and all of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so, so, um, I, I, there's two elements it's data entry and data retrieval and mm-hmm. data, you know, data visualization so associated with retrieval. So data entry, um, uh, one of the great mythologies about electronic health records is everybody castigates every single electronic health record as being unusable. Um, and um, they, you know, they give a thousand reasons why and a lot of legitimacy in those complaints. But the bottom line is, is that the human condition is more complex than any other uh, thing that we study um, in science. And because of the complexity of the human species, both from a physiologic as well as a psychologic. And now we have the genome and the microbiome and the, the array of stuff is, is so huge that the complexity is high. In addition to that, the variations, the legitimate variations of workflow, uh, you know, mm-hmm. one cardiologist does, does things one way and the cardiologist right next to her does it a completely different way. And so how do you accommodate different styles of learning and data entry and data extraction from a patient and from the chart and the synthesis? Um, and so it, it's kind of the conundrum for electronic health records is to be able to be flexible enough to satisfy all those different workflows by people in the same, especially in the same building, let alone different institutions, let alone different specialties, let alone different mm-hmm. members of the care team. And so to the extent that you need to have flexibility about workflow, what needs to sit on top of a health record um, is uh, a, a, uh, an isolation of the presentation uh, layer mm-hmm. so that when you, when you look at this information, um, it could be context sensitive uh, based upon Bayesian principles. If you're, this person has a known right. history of you know, five diseases, they're presenting with this problem. So here is the likely stuff you would want to see in the chart. Boom, pop it forward in the interface, and you can see everything you need to know that's relevant to that condition at that moment in time. You can still review the whole right. rest of the chart if questions come up. And, and similarly, in the workflow, you need to be able to have uh, a dynamically adaptive anticipation of what is likely to come next for this particular user of a health record and their style of documentation and the number mm-hmm. of permutations. There's a combinatorial explosion of permutations right. of legitimate workflow that are very, very hard to accommodate. It's really been fantastic. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Back to you, Greg. Thank you, Fred. And that will be the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, John Madison, MD, former Chief Medical Information Officer and Assistant Medical Director for Kaiser Permanente. 
for more information on John or to follow his work, go to www.johnmadisonmd.com and follow him on Twitter via at John E. Madison. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters saying bye now. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.